this podcast Tim O'Reilly from O'Reilly Media talks about data jobs and what's the future so stay tuned so welcome everyone to future of data podcast today is a very special episode i think today we have uh, an awesome visionary and awesome guest on the show that pretty much signifies that we are doing a good job so tim tim orally from orally media welcome to the podcast i'm uh, glad to be with you great so a brief bio for any very few of us who didn't know about tim so tim is the founder and ceo of orally media his original business plan was simply interesting work for interesting people and that's worked uh, worked out pretty well orally media delivers online learning publish publishes books runs conferences urges companies to create more value than they capture and tries to change the world by spreading and amplifying the knowledge um, of innovators tim has a history of uh, convening conversations that reshapes the computer industry in 1993 he launched the first commercial ad supported site on the internet in 1998 he organized meetings where the term open source uh, software was agreed on and help the business world understand its importance in 2004 with the web 2.0 summit he defined how web 2.0 represented not only the resurgence of the web after the dot com burst but a new model for the computer industry based on big data collective intelligence and the internet as a platform in 2009 with his gov 2.0 summit he framed a conversation about modernizations of government technologies that has shaped policy and spawned initiatives at the federal state and local levels and around the world he has now turned his attention to implications of ai uh, and the on demand economy and other technologies that are transforming the nature of work and the future of uh, future shape of the business world this is the subject of his forthcoming book from harper business uh, what's the future and why it's up to us with that uh, tim welcome to the podcast glad <clears throat> to be with you great and and by the way <clears throat> thank you f- so much uh, for keeping us all attuned and informed in how this world is shaping up we have all been following um, almost every assets of orally media and they have sort of uh, helped us stay on top of this technological curve so why don't you walk us through your journey if i missed out anything in in, in the description yeah no I, i i think you you captured some of the highlights uh you know maybe the story i'll tell is one that may be of interest to people who have been sold the silicon valley story that uh you know the innovation begins with entrepreneurs meeting up with venture capitalists who will fund their businesses because i started my business with $500 and it was funded not by vcs but by customers and i think that this you know while, while we talk a lot in silicon valley about uh a uh, product market fit there's still a bit of uh a of kind of a a bad message that's being spread to entrepreneurs which is that you need investors in order to start a business mm. and uh, there are a lot of companies that get started with investors and never find customers uh, whereas if you find a customer you have a business from day 1 mm. and uh so you know i guess the part of the story i would like to emphasize is that even though i've been around silicon valley i've participated in 
uh, you know, a lot of the really interesting technology innovations. I've done it a different way. And I think it's super important because one of the messages in my book is that I've come to realize that the financialized economy where people are measuring things by valuation, which is really the betting market Hmm. about the future, uh, is very different from the economy of real goods and services exchanged by people. And I think we need to rediscover that economy. Uh, if we're, you know, because if, in fact, you know, your goal is simply to maximize the value of a financial asset, a stock, rather than build a real company with relationships with customers, you can do it with the equivalent of fake news. You can you know, uh, do stock buybacks. You can uh, you know, spin a great story for investors that never comes true. And uh, you know, a lot of what's wrong in our economy is there are a lot of people who are getting uh, rich without actually creating value. And, and, and my company's uh, you know, mantra has always been create more value than you capture. Uh, and we, we came upon that, that as a motto after I, I was telling a story at a company meeting about uh, how uh, you know, some internet uh, billionaire had told me he'd started his company with an O'Reilly book. And I said, wow, we got 35 bucks. He got a billion. Uh, that's actually a pretty good deal. We, we created that value. And, uh, I, I, uh, and then one of my people, Brian Irwin, said, uh, yeah, we create more value than we capture. And, and every business should try to do that. You know, and, and instead, we see a lot of businesses where people are trying to capture more value than they create. Interesting. And, and um, so, where does, uh, so where do you spend most of your time nowadays? Like what, what do you do now? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Well, I'm still the CEO of O'Reilly Media, although I'm not involved. Uh, I'm really acting more like executive chairman. Uh, Laura Baldwin, my president, COO, runs the company day to day. But I'm involved in, uh, uh, you know, strategic decisions, uh, spend, still spend some time, uh, you know, kind of advising on where, the, where our products are going. Uh, but mostly I'm spending time out in the world. I'm doing a lot of speaking, uh, writing. Uh, I, I go out and meet with people. And again, this does feed back into uh, you know, the work that we do at O'Reilly Media as I learn interesting new things. It shapes our strategy. It shapes uh, you know, uh, who, who we bring to our events, uh, who we publish, uh, and so forth, what technologies we cover. Uh, but I also spend uh, a fair amount of time uh, working on a nonprofit that I'm on the board of and that was started by my wife, Jennifer Palka, which is called Code for America. And it's really an outgrowth of the work that I started doing around 2009 with Jen around how do we bring what we've learned in the technology industry to government. Uh, and, and it's turned out in the beginning, it was really about new technologies like cloud computing and but what we've really found through Code for America is what people need to learn is user-centered design more than anything else and iterative development. So, uh, so we, we kind of are preaching you know, data-driven, 
iterative, user-centered development. Uh, because there's so many cases where government programs fail because they actually never think about the implementation. And one of the great learnings of Silicon Valley has been how to develop products iteratively. You know, and, and it's funny because, of course, if you're younger, you probably don't remember what software development was like before the internet. And, you know, literally it was, uh, you know, this process, even in the, you know, like on the PC, you know, with Microsoft, it was a new release. If you were lucky every year and a half, mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes not for two, three, four years. And the shift to, to continuous deployment. And I remember back, you know, when we first started, you know, kind of celebrating that around 2004, 2005, as part of the Web 2.0 discussion, it was a revelation to people. I remember this guy, Mark Lukowski, who'd been a senior guy at, at, at Microsoft. He went to Google and he was just sort of, going, oh my God, I developed something and I push it live around the world the same day. And of course, now we know that companies are, are, are deploying, um, you know, with thousands of experiments, A-B tests. And yet, when you look at typical software development on behalf of governments, mm is still you have an RFP which takes four or five years to develop uh, and then you have a 10-year contract guaranteeing that your technology is going to be far out of date. And so if you really we want, and, and I think as a result, part, part of the results of that is we have less trust in government mm. uh, because in fact it's not keeping up uh, with the experience that people have in the private sector. They're going, wow, you know, I can... I can buy something from Amazon and have it delivered the same day. Uh, why does it take you know the VA nine months to figure out that a discharged soldier actually worked for them and is eligible for benefits? You know, actually, I think it's eighteen months. You know, this is insane. You know, because they they have not actually learned those lessons of how do you build things that are more responsive and data driven. And but it's also about the user experience where you understand what goes wrong in systems and how to fix them. Mm. You know, you don't get it right the first time. And so, anyway, I've been spending a lot of time, uh, you know, working on that because I think it's a, it's a very important sector mm. of our economy. And it goes hand in hand with the work I'm doing, uh, trying to persuade policymakers to think differently about future work. Interesting. And, and, and by the way, I do appreciate you for doing that. I think and thank you so much for such an awesome job there. Um, and um, I think I, I love uh, that the tagline of interesting work uh, for interesting people. So creating interesting work for interesting people. So what is nowadays an interesting work for interesting people? Like what what's what's nowadays? You can define that as. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website First Friday Fair. .tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Well, uh, there's so many areas that I find interesting. Uh, and I, I will say that I am, unlike a lot of people in uh, Silicon Valley, I tend to be more interested in uh, things that are pre-commercial than things that are commercial. And, uh, you know, so when I, when I say, wow, what am I... What do I find really fascinating these days? I go, okay, how about uh, what the thing that, that Ryan Phelan and Stuart Brand are working on, uh, mm -hmm. you know, bringing extinct species back to life mm -hmm. uh, you know, with genetic engineering. 
that's freaking, you know, it's kind of a crazy hacker ethos. Um, you know, it's not like the Silicon Valley startup, mm-hmm. but it's the kind of thing where I go, wow, you know, we are going to have to actually probably do genetic engineering on large mm-hmm. scale to adapt to climate change. Uh, but it's also going to be one of the industries of the future. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about, uh, you know, biotech. And, and, and part of my experience has always been that despite this, this sort of mythology that it's all about venture capital, you know, so many of the interesting things that I've been associated with started with hackers. Mm. You know, the PC industry, it was like the Homebrew Computer Club, uh, the World Wide Web. It was just all these people. And we were just going, wow, here's this free software. You can make these cool, cool websites and share information with each other. It was free. It was easy. It was, it was non-commercial. You know, the maker movement. You know, we started Maker mm. Fair to celebrate what people were doing with hardware and new manufacturing and the Internet of Things. And in each case, it was pre-commercial when it was interesting. And it became interesting, obviously, on large scale. And it's not to say it isn't interesting once the money arrives, but I tend to be interested in spotting those areas that people are, um, you know, are, are, are working uh, at the edges. The other thing I find interesting are people who are working for you know, more than a financial payoff. And a great example of this, which I, I, I talk about in my book, is a company called Zipline. Mm. Uh, you know, while there was all this buzz about, you know, Amazon or Google, you know, competing on drone delivery, and I've actually been at a Google conference where I had a cup of coffee delivered by a drone. You know, this is stupid. Mm. You know, on the other hand, what Zipline is doing, it's a company uh, from here in the Bay Area, but they're working in Africa. They're going wow, we can use on-demand technology and drones uh, to get blood anywhere in the country. And they're working, they started out working in, um, um, sorry, I'm, I'm having a, 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 what they call a brain fart. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, they, uh, you know, they, they basically, you know, they're going, okay, the leading cause of, of female mortality is, is uh, postpartum hemorrhage. Is not developed uh, hospital infrastructure. Uh, the roads are bad, uh, but this you know the clinics they just don't have supplies of all the right blood types. Mm. We can get them. so uh, they have they're covering the entire country. They've now made deals in four or five other countries. So they're solving. They're using this technology to solve you know hard new problems. Interesting. I'm also I'm also super interested in, in AI and how it's changing uh, the world. Interesting. And and now let's let's get on the on the book. So by the way, very clever title. Uh, who come up with the name? Well, uh, I uh, it really grew out of a um, a piece I wrote called the WTF Economy, mm. and uh, which is a piece I wrote on Medium when I was starting my next Economy Summit, and um, I was trying to uh, you know, get across that there's these technologies that, that you, know, you can say WTF to, which can be an expression of amazement mm. uh, or an expression of dismay. And I, I like the, the kind of the edginess of that term, you know, because you, you know, the first time, you know, like, for example, uh, you know, I, I saw Uber, I was like, WTF, this is so cool, you can have a car. 
And then, of course, when you start seeing all the ways that they're uh, not necessarily being good to their drivers, you say WTF in the other sense. <laughs> and so I'm trying to explore that edge of WTF. I was doing it with this, uh, you know, thinking about technology and the future of work. And um, it got translated to what's the future as a result of a talk I gave at uh, uh, for President Obama. I was the warm-up act for uh, at this uh, conference that uh, in the waning uh, you know months of the Obama administration, we did a, a conference called Frontiers at Carnegie Mellon, mm. uh, and uh, it was focused on AI. And they asked me to come give a talk. Uh, you know, about about the impact of AI, and I wanted to call it WTF. And they said, no, we can't do that. And I said to White House comms, just say it stands for what's the future. <laughs> and they clever. said, yeah, we, we can work with that. So they got it approved. Um, and then uh, you know, it just seemed like, um, you know, what's the future was a, uh, uh, a good starting point. And, and, and part of the thing is the, the opening part of the book is really about how to think about the future. Mm -hmm. The book has four parts. And so it's really like not, this will happen, that will happen, you know, here, here's, you know, what to expect. It's much more, you know, so my, my original title was, um, you know, what's the future and how to think about it. And my wife said, oh, that's a stupid title. Uh, you know, the really important part of your message is the choices we have to mm -hmm. make. Uh, she herself is writing a book called No One Is Coming, It's Up To Us. And she said, call, uh, you know, uh, what's the future and why it's up to us. Because it's really about the role of choice in, in, in uh, you know, and, and this idea that entrepreneurs are effectively reinventing the world. Uh, this idea, you know, a WTF technology, it, it, it creates that sense of WTF because it really is it's, it's unprecedented. It's something that, you know, was unexpected. And so, like, talking about back to Zipline, talking with Keller Renato recently, um, uh, you know, he's talking about, uh, you know, the people in Rwanda where they, they started this, this project. He said, originally, it was like, oh, my God, what's this thing? This, this bird flying through the sky and dropping something. And now it's like, they expect, they expect stuff shows up by drone. You know, they go to the hospital and stuff comes by drone. It was WTF, and now it's the stuff of... of um, of ordinary life. And, and, and I think it's super interesting because mm. there's a set of technologies that are now going to come back to us from people who are out there pushing the boundaries. Uh, and uh, anyway, so, so anyway, the first part mm. of the book is really focused on this, you know, it's in some ways it's, it's retelling some of my ancient history uh, out of O'Reilly, some of the things you talked about in the introduction. Uh, you know, how did I, you know, sort of frame the story of open source? How did I, uh, come up, you know, move from open source to big data and 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 Web 2.0. You know the idea of, the, of collective consciousness and the global brain as a key idea. These were ways of reframing and seeing things differently and stuff that everybody else was talking about, but kind of a kind of pattern recognition. So I kind of talk about the tools of how to do that. Also retelling some of the stories of you know my career in tech. You know how I. The role I played in persuading, uh, you know, Amazon to think of themselves as a platform rather than an application, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so on, because uh, I was really focused on this idea that the internet really was becoming a platform. Uh, yeah, everybody was still focused on the PC. You know, so if you you know roll back the clock twenty years, 
you know, everybody was focused on Linux was as an alternative to Windows. And mm -hmm. I was like, no, 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 no. So that's the wrong, wrong way to think about it. And so, and so this is the reason why I spent the first part of the book on that was because I wanted to set up, okay, so what are we not seeing correctly today? And so I, I you know, I kind of then walked through the idea of platforms and, and, and how ch we need to change our perspective on what a business is. You know, for example, this whole debate uh, on, with on-demand companies are, you know, Uber and Lyft drivers, employees, or uh, contractors. I go, this is a, you know, it, we're framing using the old metaphors. There's something new. And, uh, and, and it's reflecting a way that humans are partnering with machines in new ways. And then I try to unpack that and draw some principles and lessons from that. And then uh, the, the second half of the book is really focused on AI writ large, mm. not on you know, the, the, the technical details, but really what does it mean to build an algorithmic system? Because of course AI is on a continuum with big data. And I, I try to do this through you know, telling the stories of several different companies. You know, we, I look at uh, how Google search quality works. What does it actually mean uh, to, to, to you know, have a, an algorithm to be optimizing for something. And then I want to Facebook and fake news and, and kind of get the, uh, across the idea that we can have the wrong optimization. Mm. You know, Facebook thought that showing people more of what they liked and responded to would bring people closer together. It ended up creating this hyper-partisanship and divisiveness. And Facebook is trying to fix their algorithm. And the reason I wanted to talk about that was because I then wanted to get on to the way that I think our economy is also guided by the wrong algorithm. And, and that's where I really get into the financial system as also a collective intelligence system like Google and Facebook. It's a, I, I try to introduce the term of hybrid artificial intelligence. And the people are focused a lot on, you know, well, when will an AI become independent of us? Hmm. And I kind of go, it doesn't have to become independent of us to be harmful to us. And in particular, uh, you know, a, a lot of these systems are, they, they are symbiotic systems. And I take some lessons from biology in there because, in fact, if you look at human beings or any animal, we're symbiotic organisms as well. We have a microbiome, all these bacteria that are part of our bodies. And in some sense, I say, well, maybe the future AI is a collective consciousness of human beings mediated by machines. We're the microbiome of this AI. And so we're already teaching it what to do. Hmm. And, the, you know, and so when you look at, 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 at you know, sort of, you know, AI scare stories like Nick Bostrom's Paperclip Maximizer or hmm. uh, Elon Musk uses the idea of a strawberry picking robot that you know, self-improving and eventually decides humans are in the way of strawberry fields forever. And I go, we already have one of those. It's called uh, the shareholder value algorithm. Mm. We are literally telling our company, <laughs> we are programming them, we are programming companies with the message that people are a cost mm. to be eliminated. And so I'm kind of going, point. we want a different economy. We need to change the programming. Interesting. And I think what I like fascinating about your book, by the way, so um, typically, I've read books in which you talk about this sort of either the, the, the dystopian future or you talk about this glorious future and pretty much very less context to the past. And I think what I what I liked about um, WTF in, in, in my journey had been how you sort of 
connected the two dots together. So you explain all the legacy system, how sort of you have grown into them. And then what right. to, because I think culture is what most of those authors are missing today to talk about that culture has a significant role in understanding the technology evolution. So that's why it's, 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 it's important and customary for us to understand. I think you, I, I, I commend you for sort of having a very good capture um, in, in sort of this scenario and, and walking us through, hey, this is what we have seen. This is what we are seeing. This is probably what could happen. So that's a very n- nice flow. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Thank you. Well, again, I, I think we have some important choices to make as a society. And part of what I was trying to do was to bring in some history of when we've made good choices in the past and when we've made bad choices. <laughs> and then and, and look, both, both at the company level and at the you know, overall national economy level. Because, for example, Microsoft made a bad choice when they uh, took too much of the value from the PC ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I think Google has made bad choices. They're taking more of the value from the web ecosystem. And... Uh, and it's analogous to what's happening in our economy today, where, where companies are basically extracting value for their shareholders and, and leaving everybody else impoverished. And there's a narrative about, well, well, this is a good thing, and it's just the way systems work. And I go, well, look, what technology teaches us is that when you optimize too much for one thing, uh, you become brittle, and, and you have to actually take more factors into account. And we actually have the capability today to build more robust, complex systems that take more factors into account. And we, we could have a, 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 a future of enormous prosperity that's, that's shared uh, widely, or we can have a, a, uh, a future in which, uh, you know, few people are extremely prosperous and, uh, and everybody else is, not, is, is worse off than they were without uh, this technology. Interesting. So, uh, so what's the resolve? I think so. Typically, if if you look at and you yourself as um, you are you are a business owner, you you understand the nuances of creating value for the shareholder. Like there are many, there are very few KPIs that has been created and given to an entrepreneur to sort of keep it secure when it, when and to sort of measure the success of its outcome. And then even the stock market has learned to appreciate those dynamics. And then that has helped sort of entrepreneur to raise more money or whatever. So like what so what is your resolve? And I think I, I, I love um, the thought, like one side of me says, yes, you want to create more value. And but the, but the other side also says that, hey, you need to create more value for the shareholders on because who are, who are backing you. At, so what's, what's the resolve you would suggest? So the way I think about it is uh, when you're building a system uh, that has multi, that you know, depends on multiple resources, you really want to reward the resources in proportion to their contribution. Mm. And, 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 you know, obviously, let me take a very extreme case. Um, you know, here's Apple, the most profitable company in history. They, uh, if their customers left them, uh, they'd be screwed. Mm. If their employees left them, they'd be screwed. True. If their suppliers left them, they'd be screwed, right? If the if the the government failed to provide the rule of law, they'd be screwed. If their shareholders all abandoned them, 
except mm. for the psychological, uh, you know, kind of like shock value of Apple point. stock. It wouldn't matter at all because the value that Apple produces is in selling stuff to customers. They make so much money. I mean, they do use financial markets. They don't get anything from investors. Those investors are just trading among themselves, you know, betting on Apple's future. Um, and so Apple could literally even make up the money they give to uh, their employees in the form of stock options out of their cash. Interesting. Uh, you know, that, uh, and, and now that is an extreme case. Now, in looking at another extreme, you have financial markets working correctly. You know, when people are, say, investing in Tesla or even Amazon up, up to the, you know, the past, you know, decade, in the first, you know, decade or and a half, it was like, this company would not have existed without investors. So investors right. deserve an enormous return because they're, they're betting on something that's unproven. And, and then there's a, a, a set of companies, I think too many today in Silicon Valley, that will never produce value except mm. through this betting market. They're really, they're really financial instruments. They're just bets. And I've started to actually compare them uh, more to uh, movies than to companies. You know, they're kind of, you know, it's like, uh, you know, people enjoy betting on them. Uh, you know, and some people win and some people lose, but it's really just a game. It's part of the gambling. In uh, maybe it's not movies. It's like the gambling industry. Like, okay, is this, you know, is this stock going to win? Is this, is, it's like, is this horse going to win? So it's, it's, it's like horse racing. So it's not real. It's an economic activity, but not a terribly productive one. You know, and two things are sort of mixed in together. And the question is, can you disentangle them? And I think there's some things when you think about, you know, when I think about policy, I, I tend to think about how would we do policy if we were a tech platform? Mm. You know, and you think about the issues that Google has to deal with in search or that Facebook is trying to sort through in fake news. You know, there's a lot of signals that tell you whether uh, something is being uh, you know, developed for uh, to be a real business or whether it's just, you know, for people to bet on. And part of it has to do with, you know, the plausibility of its real business model. And you see this right now in, in uh, uh, the um, cryptocurrency space. Mm. You know, it's this huge you know, betting speculative bubble, and then small places where this company's going, oh, we actually know what we're going to do with this. I think about Ripple, for example. Ripple mm. is like, hey, mm. we're doing, you know, cross-border, we're a payments company. You know, we just happen to be using crypto to do this thing with lower friction than, you know, the, the antiquated systems, uh, you know, that were built 50, 60 years ago. So they're a real business. Mm. And, you know, and part of the job of the market is to tell which are real businesses. You know, when you look at an investor like Warren Buffett, that's why he was so good. He would look at things and go, this is a good business. This is a bad business. And right now, we just have a, a, a kind of a market that's become so enamored of the betting, and, and they're not even trying to figure out if it's a real business or not. They're just trying to go, is it a good bet? You know, and can I get out before, uh, you know, before it, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, it pays off. And I, I think, you know, there's some tax policy things that I think we could do 
that would reward real investment, like if you had much longer holding period for capital gains. You know, you go, you, then you can't just be in, in the bet. You have to wait till the bet finishes. Mm, you know, like one, one example of this is, uh, you know, if you think about the idea of a stock price being the uh, kind of um, the net present value of the future earnings of the company, and it's a bet on, on what that's going to be, there is a time when it equalized. So I, I've been doing some research since the book, mm. and I've been looking at Amazon versus Google. And, and it's quite interesting. You know, if you look at how much Larry and Sergey are worth, mm. you know, in the stock market, and then you look at Google's collective, you know, mm. 20 years of profit history, uh, you know, and, and you go, well, what would their share of the, of the retained profits be? They'd actually be about, have about the same amount of money. So in other words, the bet paid off. Now, Jeff Bezos, everybody's talking about, wow, Jeff is the, is the you know, richest person in the world. Well, what if it were a private company mm -hmm. without financial markets? What would Jeff be worth? Well, he'd still be a billionaire, mm -hmm. but his share of, 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 you know, of the money that Amazon has made over the years would be $1.5 billion, not mm -hmm. $150 billion or $200 billion, whatever his current number is. You know, so he's got this huge leverage. So his bet has not actually paid off for the investors yet. Interesting. And, and you know, it's paid, off in, it's paid off in the betting market, but it hasn't paid off in that equalization market. And, and I think, you know, if you took that into account and you said, okay, you know, once a company, you know, we're going to have one tax policy for when people are betting, Hmm. And another one for when they're, act, you know, they're actually, um, uh, so, so again, there's two kinds of betting. One is a bet on something that doesn't exist yet. You know, so, okay, so we're betting uh, on, on, on Amazon's future prospects when it's, it's uncertain. And then there's a bet on Apple's future prospects when it's super successful. And, and you know, again, it's like still a bet. It's good, a good bet, but it's not investment anymore. Hmm. It doesn't make Apple uh, possible. And so I, I think, you know, just disentangling those two ideas of this is purely a financial speculation versus this is, is financial speculation towards building something that would not exist. Could we, in fact, be smart enough in our algorithms to know the difference and have different tax policies? I think we could. Just like we're expecting Facebook to figure out, oh, wait, that's fake. That's clickbait. You know, that's a hard nuance problem mm. too. But we kind of don't, we don't hold our policymakers up to the level of sophistication that we routinely expect of our tech companies today. Interesting. I think that's, that's fascinating. And, and one more area where I want to pick your brain on is um, your, I think you partially covered in your book is about um, around how the work is shaping up over the time yeah. and i think even in in your in your company's case you have been part and parcel in, in sort of educating us what's happening what's upcoming what's mm -hmm. going to happen and from, from if if you wear your ceo hat of of uh, orally media how do you see the learning landscape shape uh, change as sort of because nowadays every day every now and day we we hear about a keyword that we have not heard before and I think back in yeah. 90s and 80s, we get enough time to learn. And I was talking to one of the senior executive at one of the retail company, and he was saying that, Vishal, when um, the shelf life of a skill is shorter than uh, 
the amount it it takes you to learn it everything just goes throws, throws out of the window so it's it's very it's getting more challenging instead of in preparing today preparing us uh, in this this uh, rapidly evolving world what's what are some of your thoughts there i guess what i would say about that is that um for those people who live on the edge of innovation that has always been the case you know the world's not moving any faster today if you're a real innovator than it was you know 20 years ago or 30 years ago you know in the early web uh it was you know you had to learn new skills all the time and that's what that that was what people do the, the what's the, the issue today is that there were a bunch of companies where you didn't have to do that that was for the that was for the mm. fringe kids you know <laughs> and, and uh, so it's it's like a little bit it's sort of like the, the the real innovators and entrepreneurs get to say to everybody else welcome welcome to our world mm. and what and in some sense you know the kinds of things that that our customers at O'Reilly have always done which is continuous learning mm. something now it's like you just have to say to people yeah you, you you know it's not good enough to go to school and learn something and practice it for you know the rest of your career you have to be learning all the time and you know i guess in one sense we have uh you know we have some advantages in that that world because that's what we've been doing for our entire you know business is educating people uh in a just in time way uh you know uh, as people are le- uh, doing it's learning to do you know i mean that's the other thing you know so much of what's happened in our our world is people are trying to do things and you learn the skills as you need them in order to accomplish something and i think it's it's a way of learning that a segment of the population has uh you know lived with you know forever mm. as a small segment and now it needs to be a much bigger segment interesting and i think um another interesting trend that i have seen over the time so uh, we as a humans we are either paid for our intelligence or for our labor like with with this now with this robots and and sort of these uh, mechanical capabilities the labor part is shrinking and sort of now we are relying more on the intelligence part but i think over last couple of decades we have been closely aligned with technologies that we use in, in our day to day lives right so it that means even the definition of intelligence is changing even for human as well as the robots and now we are sort of um somewhat more intertwined with um our our sort of uh, robot friends or our sort of algorithmic friends that we are de- using whether it's a cell phone whether it's a, a facebook whether it's whichever application so how, in 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 your in your perception of uh, of uh, the future what would you anticipate like where would this humanity would lead us and what would be sort of one of the one of the and i think you talked about this two sort of ways of um one of the dystopian view and one is sort of more hopeful view what's what's yeah. your what's your what's your take on that well i mean the first thing i would say is um yes what people get paid for changes over time and uh you know in in some sense we're always paid for our labor whether it was physical labor or intellectual labor uh but the kind of things that we define as work and that we pay for and that we value shift hmm. and um you know how many teachers were there in the middle ages you know there were not hmm. that many right 
Mm. Uh, you know, um, and, and then we had universal you know, education and a lot more teachers. Now, of course, we didn't value it enough. Uh, so I guess that there's a couple of things. That when I think about the future of work, I think about three different things. Uh, the first is uh, there's all this stuff that we're not getting to. And, and the first thing we have to do is stop thinking about jobs, which are this construct of, our, of the way we've organized the economy, and start thinking about work and ask ourselves, is, is the way we've structured our businesses our, and our economy helping us to do the work or not? Mm. And so I look around and I say, okay, uh, our infrastructures for shit are, are uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, uh, we're not investing in people because mm. an economy is fundamentally about uh, the lives of the people in it. Right. So this idea that somehow, um, you know, the robots are going to do all the work. Why? Mm. Right. <laughs> we have to figure out, well, it, what happens? So I guess I would say what happens if the machines do more of the work? There's two paths. And one is um, we put a lot of people out of work. We have a, a society with a lot more misery, a lot more political instability. Mm. Uh, or we have a system where we go, oh, let's start paying for things that people that we need more of that's real work that is not currently valued. You know, and you think about, for example, the entire caring economy. You know, particularly we, as we have aging populations, uh, you know, we all, also we, we look at, uh, you know, a lot of women decide I can't afford to have children. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, and you kind of go, well, if we value having uh, you know, uh, people, then we go, oh, we ought to really pay for care. Mm. You know, and, and we pay for it, not, not necessarily, well, your job is to raise your child, but, you know, when you think about something like, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg modeling, you know, I'm going to take, you know, three months off when I have a new baby, and, you know, this universal parental leave, that's a step towards effectively paying for part of the caring economy. Mm. Um but you could also think about it in, 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 in other ways. You know, how do we support the kind of human economy that we want? You know, how are we going to spend our productivity? There's a great line from uh, Mary Oliver. She said, you know, how will you spend your one wild and precious life? You know, we have mm. this life. We're, we're building all these amazing tools for productivity, and we have a small set of people who are hoarding that, you know, the benefits. And instead of making the world a better place, so and I think a big part of it is going to be in this uh, area of finding ways. Uh, you know, and some of it will be hacks. Uh, in in his, his forthcoming book, AI Superpowers, uh, mm -hmm. Kai Fu Lee talks about uh, what he calls a social investment stipend. You know, it's like rather than universal basic income, we just say, hey, we'll provide. Uh, um, you know, kind of an income, but you're expected to do something for mm -hmm. it, and it might be for your aged parent, it might be you're raising kids, it might be that you're teaching, it might be that you're uh, volunteering, uh, you know, but you'll do something to improve, you know, our human condition. Uh, and that's what we're paying you for. And, and that's sort of an interesting, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, approach. Another approach is, you know, compulsory public service of some kind, you know, there's a lot of things that have been done uh, over the years. There's also Another way that I think historically people have been 
taken out of the workforce is through education. Mm. And you know, it's like we went from, you know, universal, uh, you know, uh, childhood education to, you know, high school to, to, to college. And now, you know, you go, well, what if there was just sort of a stipend for people to, to take, uh, you know, 20% time to learn new skills? And you got paid to do that. We have the productivity to fund that. And it would both reduce the working hours and give people the time to, to, to be uh, learning those new skills. It's a different way of, of thinking about it than just, well, we'll just get rid of these people because we don't need them. No, we'll, we'll have them be working three days a week. We'll have them be, be learning uh, two days a week. Or we'll have them be working three days a week. We'll have them be learning one day a week. And we'll have them be taking, you know, taking, uh, uh, you know, care of, 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 of family and their wives and other people. Uh, you know, I, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. Mm. And I, I do think that, that our, you know, sort of focus. Anyway, that's one piece. And the other, mm. of course, is, is uh, the creative economy. Mm. You know, and, and I think, you know, one of the, the, the themes that runs through my book is this uh, uh, thing that Clay Christensen called the law of conservation of attractive profits. Mm. That when one thing becomes a commodity, something else becomes valuable. You know, and that was that was how I got from open sources commoditizing software. Big data is going to become valuable. And I think in a, uh, but there's also another way when you look at it in a broad economic sense. Think about something like, you know, uh, food. You know, food became cheap. It became a commodity, and we found ways to make it valuable. This isn't just you know, um, uh, you know, bread, this is gluten-free bread, you know, or this is organic, this is farm-to-trade coffee, you know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, farm-to-table food, this is fair trade coffee. Uh, they're, they're basically, we've added ideas into food to make it valuable again. And I think that's part of the creative economy writ large. And I think one of the, again, when I think on a, with my policy head on, I say, you know, we need to look at what kind of policy supports that creative economy? You know, so we say, oh, yeah, we want more craft beers. We don't want the big monopolistic commodity beer makers to put the craft, small craft beers out of business. True. Uh, you know, that's the kind of you know, monopolistic behavior. So, so that's the one thing. And then the, the last one really is just this going back to all the work that needs doing. Hmm. Um, you know, and and you, I, I, I think you know, here in the U.S., you know, we've really lost our appetite for big, hard things in mm. a lot of ways. And mm. You look at what China is doing with one belt, one road, uh, you know, investing in infrastructure around the world. You know, this is like, you know, Marshall Plan on steroids. And they're building the economy of the future while we're just kind of living in the economy of the past. Interesting. No, I think that's that's a that's a very interesting point, and and, and I think one thing that I I, I can recall, uh, I was talking to one of the struggling retail executive, and 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 he was talking to me about sort of shrinking his IT core, and and we were discussing about this idea of, and it's it was sort of terrifying to hear that how much pressure they get. so getting a getting a good talent is very very hard, and I think you talked about this this creative economy, right? These are like they are creative people coming from their diverse backgrounds, sort of getting getting their value to the business, and it's it's financially it's very sort of motivating for businesses to do more with less, um, and sort of give it to give it to automation. On the other side, so they have they have more pressure to let loose of these creative assets 
rather than training, waiting and training, training these guys. So yeah, what's, what's your take? I, well, I, I think that that's really this uh, flawed uh, objective function right. in our economy. You know, we are telling companies to optimize for their stock price. And the, 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 so much money can be made by the people at the top of a company by playing financial games that they don't invest in the real business. Now, you look at, look at something like Toys R Us, which, which you know, went out of business recently. You know, if you look at Toys R Us, a huge part of what put them out of business, it was not competition from Amazon. Mm -hmm. It was the fact that there was a bunch of financial engineering where they, you know, been one leveraged buyout firm after another, taking on massive amounts of debt, trying to basically flip the stock and, you know, basically take advantage of, uh, you know, a financial opportunity. Same thing with newspapers. You know, they're not as profitable as they used to be. You know, newspapers used to be a way to make a fortune. And, you know, I look at how much money I make in my company, mm. and I've done very well on margins that, that newspapers went out of business on, mm. right? Because they were basically going, we have, you know, they, they built, you know, as they started to shrink, they went, oh, we have to keep growing. Um, so they, they, they buy, you know, they do these big roll-ups, uh, you know, in hopes that, that uh, and they take on lots of debt. And the debt service is what sunk them. Not mm. their business. You can live on a 10% margin, even if you once had a 30% margin. You know, it's not like the end of the world. Um, you know, and it's so funny because you look at Amazon, which grew with, a, you know, retailers' margins of a, mm. you know, two or three until they found biocomputing. Um, but businesses get fat and sassy and used to a particular, you know, level of profit. And then, and, and then they try to maintain it through financial games. And then it's the financial games that sink them rather than going, yeah, you know, we're not, this is not a business that's as good as it used to be. Uh, but it could still be a perfectly good business. Interesting. So what would you, what would you suggest uh, these media companies do? Like what would, what would you tell to their, their boards? Well, I, mean, I, I, think, I think, you know, invest in your people, invest in your uh, customers. Um, and accept that, you know, some things that you used to do may not work anymore. I mean, there's this old Hawaiian proverb, nobody promised us tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I, I look at my business. You know, um, in the 90s, we were primarily a book publishing company. Mm -hmm. And we were quite successful at it. Um, book publishing fell off a cliff in 2000. Mm. Uh, dot com bus never recovered. It kind of actually flattened out for the first time this year, but every year less than the year before. <laughs> um, wow. You know, we adapted. We you know we had started our conference business and we'd grown that uh, you know enormously. Uh, we launched uh, Safari as an online, originally online ebook platform, but eventually an online learning platform. Today, publishing is twenty percent of our business. You know, events is thirty percent, and Safari is you know, over half. And you kind of go, we have adapted. We basically found new things. We said, well, we're not a publishing company. We're a knowledge company. We're a learning company. How do we bring, you know, what do we do for people? And, you know, we said, oh, we can bring them together in person. Now, a lot of publishing companies have now come around after the fact to go, oh, we should be an events company too. But we just mm -hmm. did it because we were focused on our customers. What can we do for them? And I, I think 
that uh, you know companies think they deserve to be able to stay doing what they used to do. And, you know, one of the things you learn, and, but, you know, I, it, it, it's funny because I, I, you know, in the, as publishing was declining and ebooks were, were taking over, I, you know, I was quite bullish on ebooks and there were all these publishers, like the sky is falling. They weren't, you know, it's like I looked at, at what was happening and I said, oh, you know, uh, the way the ebook market is taking off, um, you know, there's going to be these new intermediaries that are offering pennies on the dollar. We need to actually, we can't accept those terms. So we, I launched Safari because I said, you know, we have to have a business model that will actually allow us to survive, you know, because if I think this is going to be the future, I got to invest in it and I, I have to build a business model that works. So we did. And other people were like, oh, we don't want to deal with it. The future, you, know, you have to embrace the future and you have to go for it and you might lose. But if you, if you sort of go after it, you at least have a chance of succeeding. And, you know, part of, you know, one of my, another thing that I like to say is, you know, make the choices that you won't regret even if you lose. Interesting. You know, it's like if you do something that makes the world a better place and you didn't succeed, that's okay too. You know, I, so many things that I've started, other people have gone on and done more with than I have. And I go, great. I, you know, we created more value than we captured. We, 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 you know, we created the first commercial website, you know, and, uh, and we, you know, we saw how much money was going into it. I wanted to keep my company private. So I sold it. You know, I said, we're not going to win, but we, we showed the way. And, and now all these other companies get that this is a, a, you know, a real market and more power to them. And, and you know, same thing with ebooks. We launched Safari in 2000. The Kindle didn't come along for seven more years, you know, mm. but we, we showed the way the, the publishers that there was a, a viable market in ebooks. It wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't going to be that everything was going to be free. Interesting. And so about you, like what has helped you sort of stay successful? Like what are some of the ingredients that has really helped you um, stay relevant and successful through this turbulent? Because you have seen some of the starkest turbulent ups and downs uh, in, in media business and still existed. So, yeah. What's your thoughts? Well, I think a, bi a big part of it is, is uh, I don't think that much about money. <laughs> I mean, actually, it, it, it's funny. I, I do think about money, but in a different way than I think a lot of, uh, uh, of the kind of what I consider the fake entrepreneurs you know, who are kind of looking for the exit. Uh, you know, I, one, of, uh, one of the things I, I, you know, that I like to say is, you know, uh, you know, money in a business is like gasoline in your car. You know, when you take a road trip, you're not taking a tour of gas station. You know, you, you, you're going to stop at them to get the gas, but you're going somewhere. Where are you going? What are you focused on? And I've always been focused on uh, trying to, uh, you know, again, we say that our business is fundamentally about changing the world by spreading the knowledge of innovators, that we try to People are doing cool things that other people ought to know about, and we try to share what they're doing. And we then try to figure out ways to get paid so that we can keep doing it, just like you try to figure out where the next gas station is so you can actually get you know, to Arches Monument or the Grand Canyon or whatever, which is where you're really going. And you know, we're going to, um, wow, uh, you know, you know, we're going to a future of AI. 
what, where, where are we going and what are the gas stations that will let us uh, get there? <laughs> mm, interesting. So, so what, what's, what, what is your thought on um, the role of AI uh, in, in particularly your industry and what, how do you see it sort of shaping, shaping your business or your side of the business? Well, just in general, I, I, I like there's a new book uh, called Prediction Machines, um, mm. uh, which it really has a, a very down-to-earth approach to AI. It's just like, hey, this is a better way of, of making predictions. And uh, every business needs to make predictions. Mm. You know? And, and uh, trying to understand how that you know, applies, whether you're a retailer or uh, you know, developing products or uh, building you know, information services, uh, you know, super important. Uh, but I, I think that the, 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 probably the, the, so that's one piece of it. The other piece of it, though, is really this idea that's fairly central to me, which is that the role of technology is to augment people so they can do things that used to be impossible. So, um, you know, and this is something I talk about in the book. You know, if you look at uh, 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 an application like Uber or Lyft, one of the things that it teaches us is how technology creates jobs when it enables people to do something they couldn't do before. You know, to be a taxi cab driver before, you had to be able to uh, buy, a, buy a medallion or you end up working for someone who had one. Um, you had to learn your way around, right? Which was pretty complex. You know, they talk about the, the knowledge of the streets and monuments of London, one of the most difficult exams in the world. And suddenly, you realize the capabilities that were in people's smartphones. You know, not only could you get anywhere, you know, anybody could just drive for Uber or Lyft because the app knows how to get anywhere. Hmm. You know, and it vastly increases the range. You know, some you know you don't have just have a little local area that the driver will only go to because uh, that's all they know. Uh, you you and then you also have this amazing ability to match up passengers and drivers in real time. That's an augmented worker. And so one of the things that I think we, that companies need to figure out is what is it about your business that you can augment? And, um, uh, you know, it, it's sort of funny because it, I'm not always, it's, it, it's, it's not always easy, you know? Uh, um, but you know, you think think about uh, you know in any business there are probably many small augmentations. You know, how do you become an augmented salesperson? What are the tools that allow you uh, to be more effective? Well, you know, you probably get good at, at using LinkedIn. You get good at uh, uh, using Salesforce. You know, and those tools are allow you to do things you couldn't do before. Um, you you uh, you know you learn the tools of social media if you're a marketer. You know, those are augmentations, uh, and um, you know and the tools of of, 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 of big data and, and, and analysis. You know uh, all of these things. You know, so predictive analytics around what's going to succeed and what doesn't. Getting smarter about seeing what you you know what's working and what's not working in your business, and learning that faster than the competition. Interesting. Interesting. And and if, if I'm an individual um, trying to sort of navigate through this tech um, minced world um, that I'm 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 heading in, 
what would you suggest I should do? Like what, what would be your two cents for, for individuals, how, how I can stay relevant uh, in this economy? Well, uh, I believe the first and most important thing that you have to do is uh, have things that you care about. Mm. You know, the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu uh, <laughs> has this great line, says, uh, caring is the invincible shield uh, from heaven against being dead. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, that's how you get, uh, sort of power in yourself as opposed to like so many people, you know, we have this idea that a job is something you get from someone else. Mm. And when you, uh, uh, you can't get a job, you're helpless. And the entrepreneurial attitude is, there's something that needs doing. Mm. Let me go do it. And I, I always think back, this is a, 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 a memory from, probably from the, the early, it was the late 70s, I think. Um, I, I lived in Watertown, Massachusetts, and, uh, and it was this old uh, this, uh, Italian grandfather who was living next door. And I watched him out my kitchen window, and he was building something. And it turned out to be a grindstone you know, pedal-powered uh, uh, grindstone. He sat there, and then he started making wooden spoons. And, um, you know, and, and that sort of stuck with me, that image of, like, okay, you know, this guy doesn't know how to be mm -hmm. idle. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I thought about that once I was going into some talk about entrepreneurship, and there was a homeless person knitting hats out on the street outside the place I went in. And then there are all these people, and their definition of entrepreneurship is, mm. I'm looking for someone to give me investment so I can start a business. And I said, look, there's a guy outside who's more of an entrepreneur than you are, right? He's just taking his, you know, he's, he's, take, you know, he's basically out there saying, I, here's where I am, here's what I have, here's what I can do, where I am. You know, he's not looking for, you know, well, I can only do this thing if somebody gives me the handout. You know? I think and, that's, a, that's, a, that's a beautiful story, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like, so taking control of what you want to do and trying to do it, you know, and, and, and again, so when I think about how I started my business, you know, mm -hmm. all these things were unproven. It was just like we, we, we had a tech writing consulting company. We were out of work, and it was like, well, what will we do mm -hmm. when nobody's paying us? Well, let's find something useful. Oh, there's no book on BI. The, the Unix text editor. Let's write one. <laughs> oh, there's no book on on uh, you know on UECP, the Unix networking protocol. Let's write one. You know, and and so we we took the skills that we had, we did things that were needed, and then we went out there and you know we said let's try selling these things, and we sold them for five bucks originally, and 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 I still remember you know when. Uh, uh, you know, I have my book on managing UECP, which is this long dead technology, and somebody basically, this is in the days, you know, before the internet, and, you know, somebody calls up long distance, which was quite expensive, from Germany, and they asked me to DHL them a copy, and so I went, wow, they just paid $80 probably when I add up all the costs for me to ship a copy of this $5 book, you know, um, you know, to Germany. I go, oh, wow, we're underpricing these things. 
you know, I was like, we were like, how do I get this stuff to work? And, and, you know, and then we kind of fell into this world where there was all this technology that people were struggling with. And, and we went, wow, you know, it was like, look anywhere. What are the tools that there's no documentation for? Let's write these books. And so we fell into that business. And then we fell into the conference business because we were like, wow, there's all this free software. There's nobody marketing it. Let's do some conferences to market it. And, uh, you know, and again, turn it into a good business. But it was by starting with, oh, there's this problem. What can we do about solving it? Interesting. And you are in the business of giving us amazing books to read. Like, what are some of your favorite books you could, you could list for us? You mean uh, 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 that I'm reading right now? Yes. Yeah. Uh, let, let's see. I, I am um, actually here's here's a book I just ordered. I haven't read it yet, uh, but it's one that I, I heard about. It's called The Long Twentieth Century, and it's really about the relationship between uh, sort of uh, fi- big financial business models and uh, the economy. Uh, so I'm really interested in economics, and I, I'm mm-hmm. trying to learn a lot more about it. A book I, I, I love uh, that I read recently was called Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. Mm-hmm. It's really about this idea of uh, rather than thinking about growth going up and to the right, we have to actually start thinking about the, you know effectively the economy as having a habitable zone, kind of like you know the, the Earth is in the habitable zone around the sun, and you know it's like economic undershoot people don't have enough to eat they don't have shelter they don't have health care they don't have opportunity education economic overshoot climate change you know it's like hey the job of economics is to keep us in that donut which is this habitable zone sort of her image for that and I, I like it fits a lot with my ideas about ai and its ability to help us manage complex systems i love uh, kai fu Lee's ai superpowers which doesn't mm. come out till september uh that was really really good uh, uh, as I mentioned, this book, Prediction Machines, which I think is a great view of AI for uh, business people. Another book that uh, I've read recently that has not come out yet um, is a book uh, by Anand Jared Haradas called um, Winners Take All, The Elite mm-hmm. Charade of uh, Changing the World. And it, it's uh, it's going to be a very controversial book, I think, <laughs> because he, uh, he, uh, he rips uh, – Kind of, you know, organizations like the Aspen Institute and TED, the whole sort of motivational speaker industry, and really this idea that, you know, um, you know, that you can basically take so much from the world and then give a little back and you're okay. Mm. It's like, okay, we actually have, we, we suddenly may need more fundamental change uh, to build a just world. And uh, he, he, he really has some, uh, I think some profound and provocative insights uh, that we really need to engage with. I, I like that book a lot. Um, I'm thinking, um, uh, I'm looking at a book, I, I haven't read it yet, uh, but a book called New Power by um, Henry Timms and Jeremy Hyman's uh, that I've, I've been meaning to read. Um, I have, I've been also trying to reach out across the aisle and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm very progressive. I recently met uh, uh, um, uh, the head of a uh, uh, of, uh, 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 sort of uh, right uh, right leaning uh, libertarian think tank called R Street, and uh, uh, the, the head, uh, he, he he recommended this book to me, uh, "Seeing Like a State," 
and which is basically how certain screenings can improve the human condition have failed, which mm. is the argument against government intervention. And I go, okay, I, I want to read books that challenge how I think about it. I actually think that government intervention, you know, while it can go wrong, uh, just like corporate intervention can go wrong, has been a force for good. Uh, I'm also reading a book that I have started to uh, read a long time ago and then lost my copy of and just got another one. It's called uh, The Struggle for Survival, which mm, is about the industrialization of uh, America in response to World War II. It has one of my favorite lines ever, which is, uh, applies to so much. There's um, a, a victory small enough to be organized is too small to be decisive. I love that because it, wow. it really across nice. this idea that you know sometimes to tackle really big problems you need mm. just change of mindset which causes everyone to rise up mm. and you know, and it really is is the way we expect markets to work but markets can also go wrong and I you know my, it fits with my own idea of markets uh, which mm. is that right now our markets are sort of obsessed with the trivial. While there are huge problems like climate change and global health that are not being dealt with, and we actually need a change of mindset in order to catalyze that, you know, that great victory, you know, that, that you know, is, is going to be too, too, big, too big to be organized, uh, <laughs> but big enough to actually be decisive. That's pretty, pretty stark. Uh, very, very cool. So um, thank you so much, um, uh, Tim. I think this is really, really useful. So um, as, a, um, as a parting statement, um, if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, what would that be? Like, what would be your closing thought for, to our listeners and viewers? Well, uh, I guess I, the same thing I've been saying all along, which is um, uh, try to leave the world a better place than you found it. Beautiful. Well said. And I think, and, and one thing uh, I would like to emphasize to our listeners and viewers who have not yet read uh, Tim's book, what the few, this is, this is the living, I think I, I was having chuckles with the conversation because I was coming in as a curious reader and the way you were tackling sort of my curiosity was pretty much the living embodiment of that book. So I, I, I do appreciate you for, for sort of walking me through this journey of how it all came together. And, and thank you so much. Uh, Tim, for your time, I, I do appreciate you coming here. Always welcome back on the podcast. And um, whenever you're in Boston, let me know. Love to hang out with you and have a, have a cup of coffee or tea. Uh, thank you so much. All right, you're so welcome. Thank you. Uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. And I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on the side.